0: by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation, whereas the late, wicked, and treasonable insurrection against the just authority of the United States of sundry persons in the counties of Northampton, Montgomery, and Bucks, in the state of Pennsylvania in the year 1799, having been speedily suppressed without any of the calamities usually attending rebellion, whereupon peace, order, and submission to the laws of the United States were restored in the aforesaid counties, and the ignorant, misguided, and misinformed in the counties have returned to a proper sense of their duty, whereby it is become unnecessary for the public good that any future prosecutions should be commenced, or carried on against any person or persons by reason of their being concerned in the said insurrection. Wherefore, be it known that I, John Adams, President of the United States of America, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon to all and every person or persons concerned in the said insurrection." Accepting, as here and after accepted, of all treasons, misprisons of treason, felonies, misdemeanors, and other crimes by them respectively done or committed against the United States in either of the said counties before the twelfth day of March, in the year 1799. excepting and excluding, therefrom, every person who now standeth indicted or convicted of any treason misprison of treason, or other offense against the United States, whereby remedying and releasing unto all persons, except as before accepted, all pains and penalties incurred or supposed to be incurred for or on account of the premises, given under my hand and the seal of the United States of America at the city of Philadelphia this 21st day of May, A.D. 1800." and of the independence of the said states, the 24th. John
1: Adams. May 1800 proved to be a decisive time for the fates not just of cabinet members, but also for those who had been tried for their role in Frieza's rebellion. And the man making the decisions, John Adams, would prove to be much more decisive in this part of his presidency than arguably in any other before or after. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Jacob Collier from the Podcast on Germany for providing the intro quote for this episode. As we've already seen in our podcast, populations of immigrants of German heritage have had a sizable impact on American history. So if you'd like to know more about the history that forms the backbone of German-American culture, I hope you'll head over to the Podcast on Germany after you finish this episode. It can be found online at podcastongermany, all one word, I'll also post a link on the source notes page for this episode. When we last left John Fries in episode 2.17, he had been saved from the death sentence that had been imposed on him by the declaration of a mistrial, and the yellow fever epidemic of 1799 kept the grand jury from meeting and would result in a backlog of cases. On April 16, 1800, however, time ran out. And the judicial process for Freeze began again with a new grand jury in Philadelphia issuing an indictment against Freeze on the charge of treason. He would appear before U.S. District Court Judge Richard Peters again, but this time Peters would be joined by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. You remember the guy from episode 2.17 who issued the harshest sentence to date imposed under the Sedition Act? Well, guess who is the judge in that case? Oh, yes that same Justice Chase. Chase, in an attempt to expedite matters, sent a paper to the jury as well as the defense and the prosecution in which he outlined his broad interpretation of the concept of treason, which was remarkably similar to that which was argued by the prosecution in Freeze's initial trial the year prior. To say that things weren't looking good for Freeze was an understatement. Throughout the trial, Chase would strong arm the jury into his broad conception of treason And thus, it came as little surprise to anyone when, in late April, the jury found Freeze guilty. Then, a week later, Chase sentenced him to be hanged on May 23rd. Unlike the trial, which had occurred in Philadelphia, the hanging would take place back in Quakertown. It was very clear that Freeze was being made an example to anyone who would dare to rebel against the federal government. However, Freeze wasn't the only one. As noted by historian Paul Douglas Newman, In the course of the three court sessions from April 1799 through May 1800, the court convicted 32 others of lesser crimes under the Sedition Act, conspiracy, rescue, obstruction of process, and seditious expressions, and it meted out prison sentences ranging from two months to two years and fines from $40 to $1,000. Of 11 men charged with treason, 10 stood trial and juries acquitted seven. Fries and two of his neighbors, who had participated in the events of March 7, 1799, however, were set to be executed on May 23, and would thus serve as the most vivid symbols of the consequences of rising up against government authority. Despite the bleakness of the situation, there was still a chance for Freeze and his friends. President Adams had been following the case and was not convinced that the arguments of the prosecutors were valid. Unlike the arch Federalist, Adams felt, quote, that Fries and his men were guilty only of inciting a riot and kidnapping federal prisoners. The quote-unquote plot, if it could be called that, was even less organized than the Whiskey Rebellion from a few years prior. And the two men who had been convicted of treason and sentenced to death in that insurrection had been pardoned by Washington. President Adams had received pleas for clemency for 16 of those who had been convicted, including Freeze and his two friends, and the idea came to the president to issue a general pardon. When Adams started broaching the idea with his cabinet, beginning in September 1799 and renewing the conversation after Freeze and the two others were sentenced to death, he found opposition from all quarters. Attorney General Charles Lee asserted that he felt that, quote, an exemplary punishment of rebellious conduct is more necessary and will be more salutary in that state, i.e. Pennsylvania, than in any other, and therefore, considerations of public policy require that the most criminal of the insurgents involved in Fries's rebellion should be left to the due and impartial course of the law. Even Stoddard, who more often than not sided with the president, felt that the execution should go forward. If we've learned nothing else about John Adams in this series, dear listener, it's that he doesn't have a problem with taking action even when everyone else is telling him that it's the wrong move. Thus, on May 21st, Adams issued the proclamation which began this episode, granting an absolute pardon to all involved in Freeze's rebellion. To make it official, focusing in on Freeze and his two associates specifically, Adams requested that same day that Attorney General Lee prepare three pardons, one for each individual. Apparently, Lee didn't move quickly enough for the president's liking, since historian Ralph Adams Brown notes that Adams repeated the request four days later. Despite the delay, John Fries would survive his brush with the gallows to return home and go on to live into the 18-teens. Adams, however, was now in the arch-federalist crosshairs, and they set their quills to work writing vindictive epistles against the president. Pickering hit the roof and proclaimed in a letter to Senator Benjamin Goodhue of Massachusetts that Adams was right that, quote, there was a coalition, but insisted that Adams was the one colluding with federalist enemies and scheming, quote, to secure the office of the vice president under Jefferson. Pickering then wrote a couple of days later to U.S. Minister to Spain David Humphreys that, quote, The cause of federalism, which we consider to be the cause of our country, will be as little or as less in jeopardy under Mr. Jefferson than under Mr. Adams. But we shall all strive to place General Pinckney in the chair. The president pro tem of the Senate, Uriah Tracy of Connecticut, wrote to James McHenry that, quote, Undue mercy to villains is cruelty to all the good and virtuous. Our people in this state are perfectly astonished. I am fatigued and mortified that our government, which was weak at best, would withhold any of its strength at a time when all its energy should be doubled. In a time when, as we saw last episode, Adams seemed to be making calculated political moves, one has to wonder whether these pardons were yet another of those. As noted in episode 2.11, Though the Kirkenluta of southeast Pennsylvania tended to be Democratic-Republican, there was also Federalist support in the area. And, as noted in episode 2.13, John Freeze himself had been a Federalist up until he became a leader in the resistance to the property tax. At this point, the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race of the previous fall would still have been fresh in the minds of political leaders. During this race, the Democratic-Republican candidate, Thomas McKean, had beaten out the Federalist James Ross by just over 5,000 votes. Guess which region of the state had proven to be critical in flipping support for McKean? That's right, the same counties that had been the center of Freeze's rebellion. At this point, Pennsylvania would be a hard sell for a Federalist candidate, as it had, except for one vote, gone for Jefferson in the previous election. But perhaps Adams thought he could finally go beyond parties and attract support by bucking the will of the Federalists in issuing the pardons. Before he could hope for any progress in gathering support, however, he'd need to sort out his cabinet. so let's back up a few days from the proclamation of May 21st. When we left off last episode, Adams had sent a letter to Pickering on May 12th, firing him from his office. The question now became who to name as his replacement. It did not take long for Adams to arrive at his decision. As one messenger headed to the State Department, another may well have been headed off to Congress Hall, for the Senate received a message from Adams nominating John Marshall as the new Secretary of State and a member of their own body, Samuel Dexter, as the new Secretary of War to take the place originally designated for Marshall. Now, we have no record of how Dexter reacted to his nomination and confirmation. Indeed, I've been able to find little record of Dexter at all. But Marshall, who was confirmed unanimously by the Senate on the 13th, did leave us some record of his thoughts in a letter to Joseph's story. Quote, my decided preference was still for the bar. But on becoming a candidate for Congress, I was given up as a lawyer and considered generally as entirely a political man. I lost my business altogether and perceived very clearly that I could not recover any portion of it without retiring from Congress. Even then, I could not hope to regain the ground I'd lost. This experiment, however, I was willing to make. On the other hand, the office of Secretary of State was precisely that which I wished, and for which I had vanity enough to think myself fitted, I should remain in it while the party remained in power. Should a revolution take place, it would at all events relieve me from the competition for Congress without yielding to my adversaries and enable me to return once more to the bar in the character of a lawyer having no possible view to politics. I determined to accept the office. The choice for Marshall for the State Department was widely applauded, even by the Philadelphia Aurora. Despite being a Democratic-Republican publication, the Aurora asserted that, quote, in genuine federal principles, General Marshall is as inflexible as Mr. Pickering. But in the negotiation with France, the general may not have imbibed so strong prejudices. And having been one of the envoys to that republic, he may be supposed to be more conversant with some of the points in dispute than Colonel Pickering, and consequently, to be preferred. Even Pickering wrote well of his successor as Secretary of State, asserting to a correspondent that the office, quote, was never better filled. In order to fill the office, however, Marshall would not be traveling north to Philadelphia. Before we get to that, though, let's return to the last days of the federal capital in that city, for they would be busy ones. The last days of the 6th Congress in Philadelphia would see that body take on an administrative change in lands to the west. The Northwest Territory predated the government under the Constitution, but covered a wide swath of land that was quickly being populated by settlers from the East. While Federalists were concerned over the creation of new states in the West, it was clear that the territorial administrative apparatus as it now stood was not sufficient. Thus, on May 7th, Adams signed into law a bill to divide the Northwest Territory and establish the western section of the territory as the Indiana Territory. On the same day that Adams nominated Marshall as Secretary of State, he also nominated William Henry Harrison, then serving as territorial delegate to Congress from the Northwest Territory, as the new governor of the Indiana Territory. If that name sounds familiar, dear listener, it's because it should. It's not Harrison's first mention in this podcast, nor will it be the last. Trials and convictions under the Sedition Act continued, including one of a relative newcomer to the United States, Thomas Cooper. Cooper was originally from England and had ventured across the Atlantic to make his home in Pennsylvania in 1794. As Adams was assuming office, Cooper was getting more involved in politics and became editor of the Northumberland Gazette, an instrument which he used to criticize the new president as a, quote, power-mad despot. Adams attributed Cooper's attacks to the fact that he had applied for a government office as Adams took office and had been passed over. The president wrote to Pickering back in August 1799 that, quote, a meaner, a more artful, or a more malicious libel has not appeared. As far as it alludes to me, I despise it, but I have no doubt it is a libel against the whole government and as such ought to be prosecuted. However, it wouldn't be until details of Cooper's application for a government office were made public in the fall of 1799 that federal prosecutors deemed Cooper's printed response a step too far. Cooper would find himself indicted under the Sedition Act shortly after for, quote, having published a false, scandalous, and malicious attack on the character of the President of the United States with an intent to excite the hatred and contempt of the people of this country against the man of their choice. His trial would begin in April 1800, and the presiding judge would be, surprise, surprise, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. He did get around to the sedition and treason trials in the 1790s, didn't he? The trial would have attracted attention at any time, but as those in political circles were starting to turn their minds to the upcoming elections, the trial took on an even greater importance as it could potentially set limits as to how the opposition could campaign. Historian Jeffrey Stone notes that, prior to their dismissals from office, Secretary of State Pickering and Secretary of War McHenry attended the court proceedings, as did Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddart and Representative Robert Goodloe Harper. Harper had a personal interest in it, as he had been one of the main contributors to the language of the Sedition Act. Cooper would serve as his own defense attorney and would argue before the court that, in light of the state of politics in the U.S. at the time... Not only was his essay not written, quote, from any motives of revenge against Adams, nor did it contain any falsehoods that, quote, truth will not justify, but that he felt that he may not be able to get a fair trial in a court presided over by a Federalist judge as, quote, there cannot but be a bias of the partisans of the one side against the principles and doctrines inculcated by the other. Chase proved Cooper's concerns about whether he would receive a fair trial to be valid when, in his charge to the jury, quote, Chase went through the handbill published by Cooper line by line to explain to the jury why it violated the Sedition Act. Further, he explained to them that the onus of proof was on Cooper and that, quote, if he asserts three things and proves but one, he fails. And if he proves but two, He fails in his defense, for he must prove the whole of his assertions to be true. You'll be little surprised to learn that the jury came back with a guilty verdict, and Cooper was sentenced to six months in prison and a $400 fine. As it turns out, the cabinet members had not been the only ones following the trial. As noted by Stone, quote, President Adams thought the Cooper matter had gone too far. He was inclined to pardon Cooper in order to put the whole mess behind him. However, before he could do so, Cooper would have to petition for clemency. And when approached about the possibility, the newspaper man refused to do so without Adams admitting that he had leaked the details of Cooper's application for government office. Both men dug in their heels and Cooper went to jail. If Adams thought that this would silence Cooper's pen he was sorely mistaken. For a week after Cooper went behind bars, quote, he published an account of his trial in which he asked the public to consider whether those responsible for his confinement merited re-election. District court cases would continue in Philadelphia, but after Congress adjourned on May 14th, federal government officials would slowly start leaving town with no immediate plans to return. That's right, dear listener. It's finally that time in our narrative where the federal government starts moving to Washington, D.C. Prior to its adjournment, Congress had given Adams the final authorization needed to begin moving the federal offices. And, as noted by historian William Seal, the president quickly became interested in matters related to the District of Columbia. Before they departed the old capital city, though, the Adamses held one last dinner party at the president's house. They decided that Abigail would leave Philadelphia and return to their home in Quincy for the summer, while John would go down to the federal city to see how construction and preparations were progressing before joining his wife at their home in Massachusetts. The two would then venture south as the time neared for Congress to reassemble in Washington in November. While John finished up his business in Philadelphia, Abigail traveled to the camp for the new army in New Jersey. Though William Smith had been denied a position as a general, John and Abigail's son-in-law had organized a provisional regiment that he led at the rank of colonel, and Nabby and their daughter Caroline had moved into the camp with Colonel Smith. As Smith was preparing to disband his force, he decided on May 21st to send an appeal to his highly placed father-in-law, asking that the officers and soldiers in his regiment be brought into the regular army, with him as their commander, of course. Adams passed the request on to McHenry, still in his final days as Secretary of War, and General Hamilton. But though he would not receive a reply from Hamilton, McHenry's reply told the president everything he needed to know. While focusing on outlining the technical and legal difficulties of folding this regiment into the army without direct congressional approval of such a move, there is an undercurrent in the letter of how the move would play out politically. Thus, Adams wrote back to Smith on the 26th that, quote, It would be highly improper in me, and therefore impossible, to adopt your project. Abigail, meanwhile, used the opportunity of her visit to the army camp to try to convince the Smiths, or at the very least Nabby, to join her in Quincy. She would then proceed on to visit her son Charles and his family. While Charles was at least present with his family at this point, it doesn't seem that any of the problems that we discussed back in episode 2.17, his financial woes, alcoholism, and infidelity had gotten any better in the past few months. Thus, Abigail decided to bring Charles's oldest daughter, Susan, with her back to Quincy. Like her husband would do in the federal city, returning home meant that Abigail would be inspecting construction work and would find that, quote, the addition to their house was progressing, but not so fast as she wished. We'll leave the First Lady there for the moment and return back to Philadelphia to see President Adams and his private secretary, William Smith Shaw, board a coach, quote, with a new coachman and two smart footmen and depart that city southward bound. As noted by historian Paige Smith, Adams, quote, made his way over incredibly rutted roads, delayed by enthusiastic demonstrations of affection and respect. Everywhere, people turned out, shopkeepers and farmers, lawyers, merchants, tavern keepers, mothers with babies in their arms, pretty girls, and apprentice boys. The president and his party were, quote, met at the District of Columbia borderline by a company of citizens on horseback and escorted to the Union Tavern in Alexandria, where Adams was greeted with a salute fired by the militia of the city and a company of Marines imported from Baltimore. He would receive a warm greeting from the people of Georgetown on May 31st before entering the capital of Washington, D.C. the following day. Again from Page Smith, quote, the city looked raw and unfinished. There were no paved streets and few private houses, but the president found the public buildings in a much greater forwardness than he expected. At this point, the president's mansion was on track to be ready when the Adamses arrived that fall to take up residence, and one wing of the new capitol building was nearly complete. The trip to Washington would give the president the opportunity to meet with his new Secretary of State, John Marshall, and Secretary of War, Samuel Dexter, as Adams and Shaw would lodge with the two at Tunnicliffe City Hotel. Adams would also travel across the Potomac River to visit Attorney General Charles Lee at his home in Alexandria. Despite the sparse population of the new capital city, Adams' social calendar would be filled during his visit, despite his being, quote, restless and ill at ease on such occasions. A dinner attended by Seventy was held in his honor, and he would have an opportunity to visit with his son John Quincy's father-in-law, Joshua Jackson, though he did only stay a short time at a tea with friends that Mrs. Johnson had organized so that they could meet the president. He also took time during the trip to pay a courtesy call on Martha Washington and her family at Mount Vernon. Overall, it seems that Adams was impressed during his time in the district. He wrote to Abigail on June 13th that, quote, I like the seat of government very well and shall sleep or lie awake next winter in the president's house. The establishment of the public offices in this place has given it the air of the seat of government and all things seem to go on well. As noted by William Seal, quote, The president seems to have spent most of his time during the visit in his coach, tossing about over the rugged landscape. He did choose to alight and inspect the White House, which had to be entered through the basement. The president was not pleased with the character of some of the decorations around the fireplaces, and the commissioners took note. The doors with their marquetry were ready, but as the hardware would not be there until August, they merely leaned against the walls. Wallpaper was en route from Philadelphia. The president was assured that it would be pasted up as soon as the plaster was sufficiently dry. While Adams wanted everything finished by the time he moved there in early November, his particular concerns were twofold. There were no household bells and no vegetable garden. A house could not operate without a garden. As the president headed out of town to get back to Quincy by the 4th of July, the commissioners would set to work on having the president's house ready by November while cabinet members and other federal employees, around 130 in total, began to filter in. The influx of new residents would drive rents in the city through the roof as the 600 existing houses were quickly overcapacity and temporary buildings that had been in the president's park were sold by the commissioners to be moved and used as rental houses for workmen who were complaining, quote, that Washington City was fast becoming no place for poor men. While Adams was busy in Washington, D.C., our old friend Justice Samuel Chase was headed to Virginia to preside over yet another trial under the Sedition Act. The defendant in this case was someone who has already made an appearance in the podcast back in Episodes 2.4 and 2.5. James Callender, the Democratic-Republican pamphleteer and journalist, had gone on the attack again in the spring of 1800, publishing a work entitled The Prospect Before Us, in which he advocated for Jefferson's election as president over Adams in the upcoming election. In Callender's own words in the pamphlet, quote, "...the reign of Mr. Adams has been one continued tempest of malignant passions." Quote, the grand object of his administration has been to exasperate the rage of contending parties, to culminate and destroy every man who differs from his opinion. And Callender concluded that citizens should, quote, take your choice between Adams, war and beggary, and Jefferson, peace and competency. Needless to say, Callender was arrested and indicted for this, and Chase was more than glad to preside over the trial. As noted by Jeffrey Stone, quote, Calendar's prosecution became a national sensation. The courtroom was filled to capacity. Calendar's lawyers would attempt to argue towards the unconstitutionality of the Sedition Act. But that argument did not go far in Chase's court. Instead, Chase, quote, Reaffirmed his decision in the prosecution of Thomas Cooper. Chase then denied a motion for a continuance, as well as the argument by the defense, quote, that the Sedition Act should be construed to apply only to false statements of fact and not to statements of political opinion. Again, as described by Stone, quote, throughout the proceedings, Justice Chase was intemperate, rude, partial, and contemptuous to Callender's counsel. It's hard to imagine it ending up any other way, but the jury came back and found Calendar guilty and Chase sentenced him to a $200 fine and nine months in jail. Rather than dissuading the journalist from his cause, Callender would use the time in jail to complete a second volume of The Prospect Before Us, in which he attacked not only Adams, but also Chase. According to Stone, Chase wrote a reply to Callender's attacks on him, in which he asserted, quote, that he planned to beat him, i.e. Callender, after his release from prison, to which Callender vowed, in case of attack, I'll shoot him. The calendar trial would not be the only news to come out of Virginia in the summer of 1800, as we'll see next time in an episode I'd like to call I Am Gabriel That Stands in the Presence of God. Before we part ways, though, I'd like to thank Jacob Collier of the Podcast on Germany again for providing the intro quote for this episode. A link to the Podcast on Germany website can be found on the source notes page for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also find past episodes and an episode guide for both the Washington and Adams Presidency Series, if you'd like to get caught up from the very beginning. There's also one more item available on the website for those who are interested. A number of folks have asked how they can help support the podcast, so I created a wish list on Amazon of books that would help with the upcoming series on the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. If you are so inclined, I'll also be sharing the link on my social media. As is apparent if you check out my source notes, I'm a strong proponent of bringing as many sources to bear on each episode as possible in order to provide as much information to you as possible. It's because of this commitment that I received the following positive review on iTunes recently. Quote, Listening to presidencies is like chatting about one of my favorite subjects, American history, with a good friend, a very knowledgeable and enthusiastic friend. I'm enjoying this intimate walk through our nation's early days. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much to the listener who left that review, and to all of you who support the podcast by listening, leaving positive reviews, and sharing information about the podcast with others. No matter how you contribute, please know that you have my gratitude. If you have any questions or comments, I can be reached in numerous ways. You can shoot me an email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can connect me through social media, where I can be found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at podcast. again, all one word. As a special treat, I'm including some audio bloopers at the end that I've collected from the past few episodes. I laugh at myself at times when I get to going so fast and get tongue-tied, or when, for some inexplicable reason, I just can't seem to get a word out. Thank heavens for editing software, but I thought you might enjoy listening to some of the more comical outtakes. Again, I cannot thank you enough for listening. Until next time, take care dear friends as names events vote as names events wrote as names events wrote as names events wrote. as names wrote. Wrote. wrote yeah mm. Mm. <clears throat> this was the reason why Adams ended up with Jefferson as as Pickering then wrote a couple of days later to U.S. Minister to Spain, ju- to U.S. Minister, uh, and the and the and the judicial pro and the much ink in newspapers of the time was spent on debating whether the nation should was spent on debating whether the nation should, should was spent on debating whether the nation should. should was spent on debating whether the nation should should support, should support, should support, should support. Was spent on debating whether the nation should... should, should <laughs> the Korean War
0: has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World